0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. As always, we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and indeed, today is no exception. I'm really excited to do a deep dive into all things menopausal hormone therapy with Dr. Doreen Saltiel. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start again. I needed to confirm whether I'm saying your last name correctly. Is it Saltiel? Yeah, that's fine. That's perfect. All right. Fabulous. Okay. Starting again. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Doreen Saltiel. Uh, We're going to be doing a nice dive into a menopausal hormone therapy, just a good survey on the literature. Um, she's really established herself as an expert in this arena, and I, for one, appreciate it. But before I do that, let me give you a little bit of Dr. Satiel's background. She received her medical degree from New York Medical College before completing her internal medicine residency at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio and subsequently a cardiology fellowship at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. She practiced cardiovascular medicine for 14 years in the Army and her Army service culminated at Fort George, Georgia, where she was chief of cardiology. Um, and the South, uh, excuse me, Southeast Regional Consultant in Cardiovascular Disease. Uh, following 20 years as an interventional cardiologist, she practiced phlebology and functional medicine in Fort Smith, Arkansas. She's board certified in internal medicine and is and is an Advanced Fellow in Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine. Recently, Dr. Saltiel served as the Vice President, Medical Affairs and CMO for Genova Diagnostics, and she's currently the Medical Director of Peak Health and Wellness in Asheville, North Carolina. She's a member of Cardio Survey Research Panel of the American College of Cardiology and the Metagenics Cardiobo... Cardiometabolic Health Advisory Board. Uh, She also serves as a consultant for Precision Analytical. Dr. Saltiel, welcome to New Frontiers.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: And it's really lovely to be able to connect with you again and, you know, to dive into this all-important topic of menopausal hormone therapy. Um, But, you know, before we do, I want to learn, I just want to learn a little bit about your background. You've been practicing functional medicine for a long time. Actually, you've got an incredibly impressive medical uh, career uh, with, you know, 20 years of functional medicine in there. So just talk to me about that. You know, what got you into integrative slash functional medicine and, uh, yeah.
1: It's actually an interesting story. I was teaching for a vein company, Uh, how to do venous procedures and I was teaching all over the United States and a bunch of OBGYNs came to my office one of whom actually became a good friend of mine and we were chatting and I was teaching him how to do venous ablation and I said to him you know I cannot lose this 15 pounds that I've got around my gut and he said you need hormones and I said I'm not taking no hormones (laughs) Uh, after the WHI, I am not taking hormones. And he said, you need hormones. He said, how long are you menopausal? And I said, well, I had premature menopause and had a hysterectomy at uh, 40. And he said, you definitely need hormones. And so he and I chatted about hormones and he basically sent me all the literature to read uh, on bioidentical hormones. And then I went to his office in Houston where I actually proctored him on venous procedures, and he put a testosterone and, and estradiol uh, pellet in me because I had a complete hysterectomy, and he gave me oral progesterone, and it changed my life. Wow. And I said, wow, if this did this to me, and I didn't really thought I felt bad, mm-hmm. uh, imagine what this could do for others. And he said, you cast people all the time. You could put pellets in people. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 no. I need to learn. I haven't practiced uh, uh, anything other than cardiology for 25 years or so, and I just can't just do that. That's not who I am. And so I found the I found Pam Smith online in the A4M fellowship, and I went through the entire fellowship plus more, and realized that it wasn't just about hormones. It was about inflammation. And I transitioned both my cardiology and venous practice into a preventive cardiology and venous practice. And at the same time, incorporated all the uh, functional medicine stuff that I learned throughout the years. So that was my transition.
0: And I didn't like staying up all night anymore. Right. (laughs) That's a, that's, and that was quite a while ago. I mean, you're really sort of an early adopter of this medicine and like many of us coming with your own experience, your own personal experience. Wow. Um, And and
1: aside from that, I wanted to be an OBGYN when I was a kid. Mm. I didn't want to be an interventional cardiologist. I wanted to be an OBGYN until uh, a doctor I was rotating with said, he used to call me kid. He was my mom's OBGYN. He said, kid, you don't want to be up all night. Uh, and look what happens. I go and become an interventional cardiologist, and i 'm up all night <laughs> so i'm actually now in my second or third life, actually following a real
0: passion of mine. Ah, uh, good to hear you know, and I'll tell you what it's it's essential that we've got you know leaders like you committed to teasing through the literature because nowhere is it more confusing for clinicians and you know, regular folks, patients alike, than in, you know, to take or not to take hormone therapy. Um, so let's, I mean, let's dive in and, you know, just talk to me first of all. The big giant question um, is what does the science say regarding MHT and cancer risk? Give me the overview, you know, talk to me. Bottom line, whether or not we're concerned about cancer these days.
1: Well, and you and I can just stipulate up front, most things in excess may not be good for you, whether it be too much sleep, too much exercise, and hormones are included in that. So the answer to the cancer question is no, it doesn't increase. Uh, estrogens, hormones, menopausal hormone therapy does not increase cancer in the right patient at the right time. And of course, giving her or him the right dose delivery and ongoing surveillance. So I think the WHI really did a disservice to the medical community when they put out the data that they put out prematurely. Yes. Yes. Because as you know, the WHI was not a study looking at breast cancer. It was a study to evaluate whether the benefits we saw in younger women who took hormones could be translated to older women who are more likely to get that disease, i.e. cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, uh, osteoporosis, whether those benefits translated. Unfortunately, there was a ton of politics around the WHI, and it got all turned around and translated into an increased breast cancer risk. But let's start with the most you know, straightforward cancer, which is endometrial cancer. It's very clear. Nobody will argue that unopposed estrogen increases endometrial cancer risk. So the question then becomes, what progesterone dose and delivery will mitigate that risk? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And across the board, the largest and really only randomized trial was the PEPI trial, which looked at, 200 milligrams of oral micronized progesterone. However, there are large randomized trials that looked at 100 milligrams of oral micronized progesterone with higher doses of, say, estrogel, like one and a half milligrams than we would use today. Mm -hmm. So I am comfortable saying with the low doses that we use today, 100 milligrams is safe. Good. Vaginal micronized progesterone is a great option, right? Because it avoids first pass, it saturates the endometrium, and you probably don't need to use as high a doses as you do an oral preparation, and you'll get the endometrial protection and then all the estradiol alone benefits that you see in the literature as we march through this. Um, when we talk about breast
0: cancer, go ahead. So, but now, okay, so or, plenty of women are using oral, you know, for the potential yes. brain benefits, for the um, anxiolytic properties, et cetera. So, I mean, speak to that. Do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, actually, I use oral micronized progesterone most of the time. And most of the time I use it is number one because of the randomized control trial. Number two, and all the other trials that support its use. And then number two, the sleep and anxiolytic properties through through its metabolism to allopregnanolone and its uh, attachment to the GABA receptor. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of data on progesterone and cognition. It doesn't do any harm. But as much as we like to think that it does benefit, the data is just not there yet. Okay.
0: Okay. What about traumatic brain injury out of curiosity? Have you? Uh,
1: yes. Yes. It, it, that's a whole different. That's a whole different scenario because now the brain hardware and the brain network has been altered, especially in acute traumatic brain injury. Right? Because it you know, it'll put a break on all that hyper reactivity that occurs in the brain that you want to squelch with all those reactive oxygen species, et cetera. Et cetera,
0: right, right, right. Well, would would i mean it's a leap and probably and and I know you're just really nicely rooted in the in the evidence, but you know, it's an extreme inflammation and and, and certainly some of the you know cognitive impairment that I was I was actually just talking to to Dale Bredesen yesterday and we were on this very topic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know all is 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 inflammation driven you know in many many cases yes. and so i mean we could make the leap that it's likely beneficial would you agree with that statement
1: yes especially since progesterone is an anti-inflammatory yes absolutely okay. absolutely i would take that leap
0: well, then let me just, let me ask you this too. I just, I don't want to forget. Um, vaginal micronized progesterone dosing, where would you start?
1: 100 milligrams. Okay. Uh, okay. The data that, you know, the indirect data on 45 milligrams, which is crinone, the eight, you know, the 4% crinone, the 8% is 90 milligrams, which is what was used in the elite trial, which is a cardiovascular trial, probably is Okay but there's really not a lot of robust data. Got it. Okay. And so when I, and when I dose progesterone, I also look at serum levels of estradiol, which we can talk about when we talk about estradiol in a bit.
0: Okay. Okay. Perfect. Um, Give me just your rundown on just, just a, a list of benefits of MHT. I mean, obviously it turned your world around profoundly changed your career. And you weren't doing bad. So so just give me the the benefits of considering this.
1: Oh, there's the benefit of uh, vasomotor symptoms. Sure. Volvo vaginal atrophy, bone mineral density, and hard endpoints, cardiovascular disease, uh, and soft endpoints, I'd say cognitive improvement. Uh, So... My answer to why I give hormones to women who are outside of that golden, you know, less than 10 years and less than 60 is for their bones, their brain, and their heart.
0: Good. Okay. What about increased cardiovascular risk for women on MHT? Uh, actually,
1: estradiol alone decreases cardiovascular uh, events. There are a number of studies. Once again, the WHI sort of freaked people out when they because remember, the majority of women in the WHI were 60 to 70 years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They had, it had a neutral effect on cardiovascular events in that population in the very small population of 50 to 59-year-old women, which was about 10 to 15% of the population, there was a 40% decrease in cardiovascular risk.
0: Just massive.
1: Yeah, and then as women got older, greater than 70 in the WHI, there was an increasing trend. But remember, this was with synthetics. Yes, that's right. But when you go to the finished trial, which was a very large observational study where they used oral uh, bioidentical hormones, transdermal bioidentical hormones. It was all bioidentical hormones, much more similar to doses in what we used. There was an up to 54% decreased mortality from cardiovascular disease in those women who took estrogen-based therapy.
0: That were bio, bioidentical yeah, estrogen-based. Yes, yes good yes. um so the answer is no worries yes absolutely well no worries and benefit like lots of
1: benefit yeah, correct
0: extraordinary benefit um and so so do you think it's clear at this point in time that uh, that the, the literature is strong enough to state you know really unequivocally bioidentical uh is better than synthetic
1: yes i think even the guidelines that are very conservative basically say transdermal estradiol is the better choice oral micronized progesterone is the better choice
0: good okay good but so i, I just,
1: think there i i think that's a given i want
0: to go I, I, I don't, if you, if you can, you can certainly turn me down on this question, but I, I think some of our listeners and myself included, can you give sort of a high level sketch of the WHI politics and why, you know, all oh, of these absolutely. like horrible, these are, you know, decades long misinformation that have inf- you know, negatively informed clinical practice and for women. Yeah. Give me a, give us, yeah. get, get just. What? It was
1: a really very political. Um, when the WHI was published, um, well, before, before the WHI, before it was published, they set out to, the NIH set out to do three studies, an observational study, the hormone study, and then the dietary study. There was some concern amongst Uh, congressional leaders and doctors that the NIH was going to spend all this money. So they asked a group to look at it and see whether it was worth doing. The group said yes it is worth doing. Then as the data started to collect and remember the primary goal was cardiovascular disease. And all the statistical analysis was set forth based on a cardiovascular disease model. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, the original authors of the WHI papers were not the original investigators. So let me pause. The original authors were not the original investigators. And in fact, they wrote a manuscript that was accepted by JAMA that basically said there's an increase in breast cancer. Now, this study was empowered to look at breast cancer. And then the analysis that they used was an analysis that was set forth for cardiovascular disease so the, uh, there were analytical flaws throughout. And then the results that they call statistically significant were not really statistically significant. And then they clumped all of the people on CEE and MPA together. What is clear is that CEE alone, and I will extrapolate that mm-hmm. to transdermal estrogens, do not increase breast cancer. Period. Do not. All of the studies to date, even the, tooth, even the study that was just published that I'm writing a blog about because it irritates me, they basically said that after 20 years, CE alone, so estrogen alone does not increase breast cancer. In fact, it decreases breast cancer. And Hodson and Sorella in a great review article pointed out by 45% after 18 years of follow-up.
0: Wow.
1: However, the WHI authors continue to perpetuate the falsities about, for example, CE and MPA. What the data actually showed is that in the group who never used hormones, hormone naive, there was no difference between placebo and the CE and MPA group. But in the group who had used prior hormones, who were asked to wash hormones out, they used prior hormones, they had a wash out, and then they were randomized to either CE and MPA or placebo. The placebo group had an unusually low breast cancer incidence, lower than all the other placebo groups in all the other WHI studies. So the diverging curves, which they called an increase in breast cancer risk, was actually not because that curve superimposed on the hormone naive group. And it was actually the divergence of this lower placebo group that the divergence of those curves that led the WHI authors to say there's an increase in breast cancer with CE and MPA. And actually there was a null effect, but you know, I constantly say, we really don't care because we don't use CEE. Uh-huh. And we don't use MPA. Nobody right. uses
0: progestins anymore. Right, right, right. And conj- just in case anybody doesn't know, it's conjugated equine estrogen and methoxy, yes. progesterone it, acetate. Yeah. Right, It's
1: Premarin and Provera. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's really the very sad point of all of this.
0: Yeah.
1: Is that instead of focusing on the data that has shown that when you add OMP, oral micronized progesterone, two transdermal estradiol, even continued for greater than 10 years. Yeah. There is no increase in breast cancer.
0: And is, it, is, that it, is, it, is there a decrease? I mean, is there any benefit or is it just... Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the hard part. You know, whether the sustained decrease that you see with estrogen alone is maintained, nobody knows. But it certainly doesn't increase breast cancer. Okay.
0: And is that because too many women are stopping after a certain time again because of the yes. WHI? Yes. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. Wow. Well, thank you for outlining that. I really appreciate it. Can you, and can I mean, why did they have a different group authoring, just out of curiosity?
1: Politics. They wanted this study to go away and actually there are a ton of editorials written about this and the disservice that was done uh, because of the whi
0: well anything i would i'm going to imagine that some of our folks are going to want to read about it incidentally people since um dr satiel is, is mentioning many many papers we will link to access to those so you'll you'll be able to do a, a drill down into the same um, data that she's been talking about. We'll also link to our blog. She she wrote a great blog for us that has a bunch of citations on it as well. And um, if you've got some, uh, if you can link us to a good read on this WHI story, I think it would just be compelling for, for some of the audience. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Perfect. All right. So let's move over and talk about, um, the literature on transdermal uh, estradiol. Actually, you just, if there's, yeah, go ahead.
1: What I was going to say is, you know, a lot of the studies are, that's the unfortunate thing. They're uh, small studies, but the patch studies, for example, the FDA approved patches, which are all bioidentical, the FDA uh, approved gels, are all bioidentical. Those studies clearly show uh, symptomatic relief of vasomotor symptoms, uh, osteoporosis prevention, vulvovaginal atrophy prevention, uh, and there are some really small studies that demonstrated cognitive improvement. Uh, the largest uh, study was the Finnish study that looked at both cardiovascular disease and breast cancer and found that both cardiovascular disease and breast cancer were decreased using transdermal estradiol products, both up to a 54% decrease. Uh, And of course, the younger the woman, the earlier you start, the greater the benefit.
0: So, how early can one start? I mean, would you initiate during? Yeah, I mean, would you initiate during perimenopause? I mean, what as soon as symptoms kick in? I mean, what are you, yeah? What, what are your thinking around it? I
1: typically don't give estrogen to women who are perimenopausal, and partially because of the ups and downs of estrogen. Sure. And uh, I always give progesterone to perimenopausal women. Now, the, the data on, interestingly, progesterone and vasomotor symptoms, the answer is yes, it works. Uh, on bone mineral density, yes, it's necessary. Uh, those are the two. And then in cardiovascular disease, it, there's no harm. But I typically start perimenopausal women anywhere between 100 and 200 milligrams. And the higher their serum estradiol is, the more apt I am to get 200 milligrams uh, at night before bedtime.
0: Okay, good. So uh, you're going oral? Or do you, would you use vaginal?
1: Oh, no. I would do oral in those women, uh, partially because of the, because of the, most of these women, as you know, have anxiety. They can't sleep. They have hot flashes. Uh, and oral progesterone works for all of those. Okay.
0: And then once they hit the year, um, transition to full, you know, to, to to being postmenopausal, are you going to, what's going to, are you going to, to initiate estrogen at that time?
1: I, I actually may, may do it at six or eight months, uh, not wait for the magic year. If somebody hasn't had a cycle in six or eight months and I check an estradiol level and the, and I don't check FSH because that bounces all over the place and their estradiol level on a couple of occasions is low. um, I may start a really, really low dose uh, estrogen. And
0: is that, Uh, is that based on their symptoms or just the potential benefit or both? Both. Okay. Both.
1: Um, because you know, the bone mineral density, especially Mm -hmm. because women who are perimenopausal really are at that point, they pose an increased risk of osteoporotic fractures because it's during that first few years of menopause that, that bone loss goes up and then it stabilizes. And then when they become frail later in life, it goes up again. Right. So you really want to kind of protect their, their bones uh, as early as possible. And I'll also give testosterone to women. You know, I don't talk a lot. Of, I haven't yet. We can do a whole different podcast on testosterone. But I also give testosterone to women because it helps bones. It helps with vasomotor symptoms. Yes. And so it does a lot of good things. Yes, uh, and so then it's it, it's deciding how to give the three uh, at once. Do I wait? Do I not wait? So, in a perimenopausal woman, I may give her testosterone and progesterone.
0: How are you dosing the testosterone? Uh, in, in, in I'm a
1: pelleter. so in women and men, I'll pellet. But I typically start. Uh, with a cream of about, a, I, I typically started a half a milligram in a woman. Okay. Um, okay. And partially that, uh, partially is if they have none, it's going to help. Whatever you give a woman is going to help. Yes. The question is to what degree and how patient you and they are going to be, because I hate to overdose people. And I've done it. You know, we all have because then when you back down it's miserable for the patient and it's miserable for you
0: yeah so titrating up is is how you approach it yes start low and go slow Yep. good okay and incidentally again we'll be list, we'll be you'll have a, a host of resources where you where where um Doreen goes into pres- more prescribing detail. We'll continue to talk about that, but, but those, uh, her, her thoughts on those are, are available in the links in our show notes. I, I'm, but curious, I just wanted to ask you, though, on that um, front, how, you're, how low you're starting transdermal E2 in a perimenopausal woman, like six months out? Uh, I
1: will start with, say, I'll take a 0.025 milligram patch and I'll cut it in half. Or if I'm uh, dosing a cream, a bias, it's a 0.125 milligrams. It's really tiny. Yeah. I'm just trying to get her uh, over, you know, not to be asymptomatic. And the data has shown that a 0.014 milligram patch improves bone mineral density, vasomotor symptoms, vulvovaginal atrophy. So really low doses work. And then I follow urine. And before I start, I follow serum. Because the, here's the data on serum. In a woman who you're going to start hormones on, if their if serum estradiol level is really low, less than five picograms per mil, mm-hmm. that woman, when you initiate estradiol, is more apt to spot you know, her vaginal uh, wall is atrophic, so she's going to spot. If her serum estradiol is greater than 10, this came out of the Bejuva trials that they did for the combo oral progesterone, oral estradiol pill that was approved by the FDA, Mm -hmm. that what they found is that women whose serum estradiols were greater than 10 Mm -hmm. picograms per mil, when initiating therapy, they were more likely to have a proliferative uh, endometrium. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I run off and send people for transvaginal ultrasound or anything like that. What I will do with that woman is I will start her on progesterone before I start her on estradiol.
0: Let
1: me get some progesterone on board.
0: Yep. Are you cycling it?
1: No, no, no. Um, women hate that. Well, at least the women I deal with. None of them want to cycle. Okay. So I do continuous hormones. Um, and for our entire lives until we become menopausal, we did continuous hormones. Even when we cycled, we still have a little bit of estrogen and, you know, and progesterone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and testosterone is independent of that.
0: Right. Um, all right, talk to me about estrone and estriol. Are you using these at all? Hmm.
1: Estrone never,
0: mm-hmm. because in some
1: of the metabolism breast cancer studies, they found that women with higher estrone levels were more apt to uh, have uh, and develop breast cancer. So no, I never use one. Uh, E3 I do use. Interesting. I, I go back and forth. It's kind of interesting. I go back and forth with E3 um, because it is breast protective and it does work for local uh, vaginal symptoms. So uh, the question is, how much am I worried about a woman's breasts. Well, I know estradiol doesn't increase breast cancer. So if I'm going to do a bias, uh, I may, you know, uh, hope that her vaginal symptoms were improved. But typically I have to do vaginal estradiol.
0: Okay. So So you'll really,
1: yeah, yeah. So typically I try to get women to use a patch because insurance carriers pay for it. Mm Mm-hmm. And the data is so strong in a patch. But a lot of women don't, you know, get itchy and, you know, they don't like the adhesive and they don't like alcoholic gels. So if I'm going to do a cream, I'll stick E3 in there. But I also give vaginal estriol. Uh, for vaginal symptoms I give a half a milligram a day for about two weeks or so and then I go to every other day for another two weeks and then you know PRN most women wind up using it a couple of times a week good okay okay um and that's compounded of course
0: yeah 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 so that's my next question for you you're obviously taking advantage of you know insurance covered uh uh, hormones as much as you possibly can, and you know that we've got more options these days. Uh, but you're compounding as well. Oh, absolutely, and I do a mix of both. And and studies evaluating compounded products?
1: Uh, almost zero. Uh, there's a couple of pharmacokinetic studies uh, looking at serum levels uh, in with compounded creams and patches but there are no really well-run studies looking at outcomes. If
0: they're, well, they're so expensive. that's, you know, it's, yeah,
1: yes, go ahead. Yeah, number one, they're expensive. Number two, how are you gonna get women to apply it in the same place? I mean, there are so many different variables. Um, so you gotta extrapolate. Um, you know, yeah. you really have to extrapolate the data. And I always tell patients, here's the here's the deal. Uh, orals are out. They're the least safe. Patches have a lot of data. Gels have a lot of data. Gels require higher doses to achieve the same thing as a patch will, according to all the studies out there. Uh, same efficacy. And that's why I try and start with a patch. Mm-hmm. And if a patch doesn't work, then we go to a cream, knowing that I'll follow your, and I tell the patient, I may need to follow urine levels much more closely to ensure that I'm achieving what the studies documented for the patch data as being effective. Now, clearly, vasomotor symptoms, vulvovaginal atrophy, those are the easy ones, right? right? Because people tell you, it's, it's really osteoporosis. And you want to keep a woman's serum level somewhere between 20 and 40. And if you're using urine, like I do when I use Dutch, it's 0.7 to 1.8. And I typically keep people about 1.2, 1.3 using the Dutch test.
0: Good. Okay, good, good. Um, I want to talk about laboratory testing now. Uh, You're using, uh, I mean, do you use saliva? You start with blood you then you use Dutch. Um, I want to know how you're using the Dutch. Maybe actually, why don't you start with the panel that you're running at baseline in blood, move over to how you're using Dutch and are you using saliva in that mix at all?
1: Let me, let me start with saying I used to be a diehard saliva user. Until I dug into the literature And realize that there's no data. And realize that a salivary E2 level of ABC tells me nothing about a woman's bones. (laughs) Tells me nothing about her heart. And... That to me main, and it's mainly that bone density data. Yeah, because if you look at the finished trial, basically they found that a 0.025 milligram patch up to a 0.1 and a 0.25 milligram gel up to uh, one milligram decreases cardiovascular events. So the doses are there, but do doses translate into clinical outcomes? The answer is no, not unless you have studied a dose with a specific outcome and have some way to measure that. You can't be doing DEXA scans on everybody all the time. Number one, it's not healthy. Number two, no one's going to pay for it. Right. And so when I realized that there were no salivary studies, I, and I, I thought to myself, why do you measure hormones? Why do we measure hormones to do no harm, right? You know, progesterone uh, is to protect the endometrium and no test is going to tell us really whether we protect the endometrium. We just have surrogate markers. But estradiol, we really want to do no harm and make sure that we're protecting the endometrium. I mean, uh, with estradiol, we're, t- we're protecting bones. Uh And so when you look at all the serum data and you see that urine follows serum, everybody says that it's easy to translate the data from serum into urine. So other than cortisol, where I use saliva all the time, I have really switched from, uh, saliva monitoring to urine monitoring. And when I, I'll start with serum labs where I'll, you know, do the typical, you know, ultrasensitive E2. I even get E1. I'll get serum hormone binding globulin. I get prolactin. I get all the typical things that we normally would get. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of women, if I suspect that, her estrogen or that she's not detoxifying well yeah. either. She doesn't poop well or, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes you get a sense that they're toxic. Mm-hmm. I will do urine metabolites up front, even though I may only see trends. So typically I do serum and urine at the same time Okay. to start with.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think it's worth it to knowing, even if you're only seeing trends because they don't have many sex hormones at that point, it's worth it to get an idea of how they might be metabolizing.
1: Absolutely. And then I try and optimize uh,
0: their detoxification
1: pathways, optimize their redox potential at the same time as I'm initiating hormones uh, so that I actually can have the hormones be as effective as uh, they need to be, right? Because if people aren't detoxifying correctly, and they're not methylating, even though we're only doing an indirect, as you know better than I do, an indirect measure of methylation, we're not measuring DNA methylation. Um, it at least gives you a roadmap to start with, right?
0: Well, that'll be an exciting study, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, compounded individually designed products, including a full panel, you know, a full urine panel with metabolites and, you know, addressing that and addressing detox individually. I mean, that would be a pretty exciting study to, to undertake. I don't know. We'll, we'll be yeah, seeing it anytime because, soon. You know, but
1: But I also think you would agree knowing how somebody metabolizes cortisol, and looking at progesterone metabolites and estradiol metabolites, even if it's trends, will certainly help you with your dosing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and you, know the, you know the additional supportive interventions that, that you need to use. Mm-hmm.
1: And So I have become a serum and a urine person and cortisol i do both urine and i do saliva depending if i want car uh,
0: yeah or right. the cortisol you know. awakening response right Yeah, yeah yeah there are other podcasts we can link to on our show notes also conversations i've had with um with mark newman over at precision analytics as well and and details on car and all of that if you want to listen to them they're they're useful if uh if you're not yet familiar just tell me some tell me some of your favorite natural products, and you know when you might use those up front just just out of curiosity and you know are you initiating some I mean, well of course you are for thinking about detox pathways, but I'm just curious about what what's in your toolkit that you really like
1: um, well, I certainly use a dim product I use calcium deglucurate. do you use that uh, on use-
0: everyone regardless of yes. their No,
1: no, I used to use dim on everybody. Not anymore. And what changed out of curiosity? Uh, Looking at pathways, understanding metabolism. And really, if there's anything I can stress out there, it's hard. I'm telling you, this stuff is not easy. Uh, And it's kind of funny. Mark always says to me, are you done yet? (laughs) Because it's hard, you know. What's taking you so long? It's hard. That's so funny. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I feel like he's, one, I, I he's love
0: one it. to talk, though. <laughs> talk yes. about going in the rabbit yes. hole.
1: <laughs> yes, but, <laughs> um, but no, I look at metabolism. Sure. Um, and, for example, why would I push everybody down the 2-hydroxy pathway if they can't methylate? I'm making matters worse. Now I'm building up a two hydroxy intermediate, which, you know, is a weak, it's not a, it's not a strong estrogen, right. but it's still an intermediate.
0: Right. Uh, What's do happening I give before, everybody? you know, is right, anything split? Right. Okay, go ahead.
1: So I give resveratrol because it will help decrease DNA adduction. Mm-hmm. Do I give that to everybody? No. And part of that is because people don't like to take a thousand pills. And so I try and target what I what I give to people. I give anacetyl-cysteine, you know, to build glutathione stores. I'll give liposomal glutathione. Of course, I always give, you know, a multivitamin and all mm-hmm. the basic stuff. But I, I really work hard to limit the number of, whether it be prescriptions, nutraceuticals, so that the patient doesn't get overwhelmed. And really will be compliant because you remember in all these people, we're also giving HPA access stuff mm-hmm. yes. and we may be giving a probiotic or other gut healing things.
0: And you're doing lifestyle changes and you're initiating oh, a yeah, diet. Yeah. And so it's, it's, I, I really appreciate your attention to, you know, keeping a program doable
1: Well, part of it is, as a patient, myself, when people give me 76 things to take, not only is it expensive, I just get overwhelmed. It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. How many pills do I have to swallow? Yes,
0: that's right. And you end up with an amazingly robust supplement graveyard. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: <laughs> and, you know, very interesting. I don't know if you do this, Kara. I tend to try and get people to do IVs.
0: Uh, good. Yeah. It's a benefit for so many reasons. We don't offer them here in, in, our, in our office, but I can certainly appreciate it. We When I was in Atlanta, we used to do them a lot.
1: Yeah, I don't offer them, but I know uh, I'm friends with one of the docs who just does that, you know, in her that's all she does. Mm. Uh, and I give the, what I want and I've developed little protocols for depending on the person and stuff and, you know, she'll do it. And, uh, they run specials all the time. So, you know, for $99, you can get a Myers with, you know, extra C and glutathione or just extra glutathione, you know, if you want $99. That's so, a really so good I price. Can-
0: <laughs> you're not, in, you're not on the East right. coast anymore, though. <laughs>
1: Uh, Asheville is not that cheap.
0: No, it's not. That's a good price. Yeah. Yeah. So, good.
1: yeah, it's a great price.
0: And it's a time to relax. I mean, there's just a lot of benefit from, from receiving IV. So when do you do your follow-up testing? And you're just at this point using a Dutch. You're not using serum. What, when do you do that?
1: Uh, typically three months after they've been on hormones you know, I want to get things to equilibrate. Now, if I'm doing, uh, if I, for example, ultimately put a pellet, a testosterone pellet in a woman, I'll check peak levels at uh, four to six weeks. And I am a very low dose pelleter. I am like the obnoxiously low dose pelleter because I don't think women need as much as a lot of others are giving. Same thing with men. Uh, And I have, other than my first I'd say a few months of pelleting back 10, 12, 15 years ago, I have not had any problems at all, but you'll really have to, I don't recommend pelleting to people unless you have trained with somebody that the procedure is easy. Whether you have trained with somebody who understands hormone metabolism and can help you understand how to dose and what the downstream consequences are of that dosing
0: yeah that's a good point point. and so where would you recommend people get training if they're interested in learning pelleting um
1: how to actually do it you can learn how to do it i think wells put something on a4m put something on um, and uh, you know if people are really interested i'd be more than happy to help people that's okay. something amy and i and uh mark are talking about okay. because i think the pellet industry has been given a really bad name by some overzealous pelleters, just like testosterone has been given a really bad name by all the people who use anabolic steroids and all of those things. So to get back, I typically do a urine at four months. Okay. Okay. Are you using
0: um, a serum testosterone though? Or are you relying on yes. the urine? Okay. You, so for testosterone. Serum. Serum. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah, but I do look at, at urine metabolites.
0: Yes, good. Yeah, yeah. really useful. Which is
1: really Yes, but serum's the default for uh, testosterone.
0: And then, yeah, okay, and you would do a free and a total, I'm sure. Um, yes. Okay. Any what else do i want to ask you this has been a useful conversa- conversation and we'll link to as much as we possibly can you folks comment on whether you know you want to learn um pelleting and um, you know how to do it correctly uh, and we'll we'll share that with with everybody over at dutch including dr saltiel and you know any questions you guys have post on our on our site and we'll get there but i the, the, Dutch is known for such a rich resource of content, and I appreciate what you're contributing there. I was reading some of the documents that um, that you've created, and they're just precise. They're well-evidenced. They're useful. The take-home points are clear. They're just very clinician-friendly. Um, I appreciate you joining me today and, you know, again, puzzling through this and giving us the history of WHI as well. That was, you know, kind of quite fascinating, a little bit, you know, disappointing, but uh, it seems like we're finally starting to come out the other side of that, you know, at least in our world.
1: Yeah, you know, and if I can just leave you with the four concerns that the WHI, um, that were raised by the WHI publications, venous thromboembolic events, myocardial infarction, stroke, breast cancer, are all minimized or negated by using transdermo estradiol products and oral or vaginal micronized progesterone. So those studies need to be put to bed, they're moot. Yeah,
0: good. That's a really good point for us to end on. Scream it from the rooftops. All right, Doreen, it was lovely to connect with you again, and I look forward to more conversations with you in the future. Oh, thanks for joining me. It was
1: my pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend.
0: Thank you. You too.